We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to architects and designers about what it's like working on projects for themselves. Our guest in this episode is interior designer Paul Brace, who is the Director of Interiors at PBD Architects based in Sydney. Paul shares with us how he designed his house to be personal and in connection to nature, everyone he tried to consider in the design of his own home, and what he learned from living in the houses he renovated. I'll now pass over to Sally Hugh, who is an Imagine community member based in New South Wales. Let's jump in. Hi, Paul. How are you today? I'm good, Sally. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us on the AIA Imagine Hearing Architecture podcast. It's good to have you around and uh, it's really, really good to have you because I think with your diverse background, we'll make this podcast very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, maybe we design our homes with what we've learned from others first because we're there. (laughs) It's important. Lessons learned. Have we made our errors somewhere else? (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very good. So I think to introduce you to our audience, uh, I'd love to introduce you, but I think it's really good to have you introduce yourself to the wider audience. Can you tell us a bit about your journey in our design profession? Yeah, sure. So I started life as a young kid out of high school with no idea what I was going to do. I um, sort of lucked out some okay marks and got into economics and ended up at a big merchant bank working in finance when I was sort of 19. And I realized by the time I was sort of 21, maybe mid, yeah, 21, 22, I sort of realized that the financial world wasn't for me. I, I needed something that had more substantial weight to it in a way there was a detachment in finance there's a detachment between value and the actual object right so that's really good to hear then how did you end up in your current role and uh, what were you working on just before this new role yeah so I, I met an architect when I was young and you know suddenly this world of possibly being working in design opened up to me and I thought oh you know, this could be interesting. I always approach design or anything as a a problem-solving exercise. You've got a set of pieces that you need to bring together for an outcome. And for me, the built environment was something where you can influence the way people live and work and play and you get to meet lots of different people. You get to experience lots of different problems to solve. And that was the sort of the pleasure of the practice for me. More than approaching it from the pure art of architecture, for me it was always about you know, how can you shape people's lives in a meaningful way? But also, how can you solve this incredibly complex series of problems for different people? And everyone has different desires, different objectives, different budgets. And that sort of juggling process that we become skilled at really, for me, is the sort of delight of the, pro- of the job. Definitely. Then into the topic of home, you've once talked about how to shape people's lives, it is the spaces that we live in. You're more interested in the design of the spaces rather than the external facade because we definitely do inhabit and live in these spaces. Can you tell us a bit more why you work more in the interiors and the spatial realm in order to be able to have an impact? Yeah, so I was originally attracted to interior more than 
architecture just because I think it was more relatable to me at that age. Like the idea of the way we occupy something, you know, just as a human from an experience perspective, I could relate to. We've all used spaces, so we were all aware of them. And then that there's a there's a different quantity conceptual leap when you start to think about the way a building relates to its urban environment. And that's something that's almost learned through a university process, right? This bigger picture scale of urban context and all that sort of stuff. So as a young person, it was really more about the interiors. But I, you know, I like both. I mean, the form is important because it sets up an expectation of what you're going to experience once you've gone through an arrival sequence. So doing our own house in at the moment, you know, my partner Michael and I have lived in an apartment for basically 25 years. I've done the purchase of apartments, generally older sort of art deco apartments, and I've renovated those. And I've, you know, with a little apartment, you're playing with replanning it to make it sort of feel bigger in a way because they're so tight. So you're always playing with internal circulation. How can I trick the eye to make the space feel more flexible and it's not necessarily about open plan but it's about most apartments are set up you walk in a door there's a corridor there's doors off it there's dead end destinations so for me whenever I was dealing with an apartment I wanted to be able to circulate and that circulation allows the space to feel bigger but also to be experienced in different ways I think and so that was sort of the puzzle I was trying to play with with apartment design. And you see that a lot with people, you know, put an object in a space, circulate around it, recontextualize the rooms, all that sort of thing. But with this, this latest move, we've finally, you know, done the Australian thing of, of building up enough equity in projects over the years to finally buy something like we bought an apartment at the bottom of the cycle, I think. And then it, we, 10 years later, we had value <laughs> and it was an awesome apartment. It was, uh, you know, it's an SJ, that was an SJB project called Casbah. But now we sold that and we've, we went looking into the suburbs. We, we were ready to leave the inner city at that point. We, we had sort of in our own personal lives sort of moved beyond, I think, what the inner city offers from a cultural perspective. It was no longer of interest to us largely. Yeah. So, you know, and our work lives are so sophisticated and complex and all that sort of stuff. We sort of want relief. We don't need more stimulation on the weekends. (laughs) That's really good because I think uh, you've spent a lot of time in selecting the neighbourhood. So as you begin to think about designing your own home, the first important question is where is it going to be? What requirements would you be putting onto that brief and the location, demographic, even the ability to be able to extend or knock down and rebuild. How did you start to assess all of those criteria? So really specifically, so I've always tried to move somewhere when it's not a hot suburb <laughs> because I, because I'm not rich. <laughs> so like many Australians, but, but, you say like many Australians, it's a really common story. So, you know, for us, maybe it would have been great if I could afford to buy a big terrace house on Burke street, but I needed to buy it in 1985, not now. But so we, we looked for a house, which we can add value to. We looked very much for a house that was already in a good planning configuration. It didn't necessarily have to be a good quality house but just that you know the room arrangement made sense the block has beautiful the block that we purchased is on the street called Meehan Street in Matraville we're really I like to say that we're in Malabar but it's across the road when you stand on the roof you can see the beach at Maroubra so the house has the potential to go up but you know it, it is as a very Australian thing it will be our number one asset and 
you know, yeah, there are two great primary schools nearby. There's a very high quality high school, which is literally five minutes away. And for us, you know, the question is, this is a house for us, but it's also a house for others in the future. And because we're sort of located in what is traditionally a family suburb, we will design it to be a family home because I think the house needs to outlast us. As it, and I suppose that starts to touch on some of the sustainability things that we've spoken about in, in the past. It's like I, when, when looking at the, the site, part of me was thinking, how much of it can I reuse? How much of the yard can I reuse? How much of it do I have to throw away? And for me, when we come to the question of actual the design itself, it was very much about how I set a framework for what I'm going to design into in this instance. And you know, I'm not approaching it from the perspective of I need it to be an architectural masterpiece, although, of course, I want it to be good. <laughs> Do I want recognition from peers? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. It's more about does my mum and dad like it, to be honest? Um, are they comfortable here? Are my friends comfortable here? Like, will they delight in the space I create? And, and will it support our sort of social life? But the house is really nicely located. It's interestingly high from the street, so it's probably about two metres up off the street level. And then we can go up again from there so it's quite elevated it's almost the highest point in the suburb and that's one of the reasons we bought it as well so long term it won't lose its views that's excellent because you mentioned uh, about you know it's important that your mom and dad likes it and it's also important that your partner also enjoys the space that you're about to create so how does that slightly different from many of the briefs that you may have with your clients or do you also approach it the same way because it is a home after all and everyone's got to have to live in it comfortably yeah definitely i think is if you work in the industry and you work in individual housing there is a tension, I think, in clients' briefs between the, is the house for themselves or is it for future resale? And, I mean, I think I'm doing sort of eight houses at the moment and all of them are for future resale if the client's honest, right? Even if it's their forever home. Oh, it's our forever home. And so, and then, you know, you work to personalize it. Like, oh, can you get some, you know, how far do you go with material extravagance? Or not even extravagance, but palette like how far do you push it beyond what the market sort of likes and and but nearly all projects in australia as you see in the press are for resale and so largely you are designing both for that and for the user but i think you can't underestimate the market's ability to accept sometimes quite avant-garde things yeah so there is a place for real sort of what we might consider sort of more edgy design in the suburbs. And I think the suburbs, people from the suburbs often take more risks than those in the inner city who I think are more dominated by the perception of social status. And so social status for them is represented by a very limited over of palette, white marble, luxury is a very narrowly defined constraint. You go out to the suburbs and, you know, the kids have weird mullets, <laughs> like the clothes aren't making sense. There's a lot more risk-taking going on, and that's the joyfulness of it as well, I think. So, uh, yeah, for us in this house, we definitely will push it a little bit conceptually, and you've seen it, I think, the house. And But for us, really, we're playing in a very average Australian idiom of a suburban family home. We're playing in a budget which is not 
unaffordable for a lot of people. We're probably within sort of eight hundred to nine hundred thousand for a full refurbishment, including landscaping. That's and great. Because for our audience that's online today, can you roughly describe the proposal in a verbal manner? Because I'd love to show everyone the design. <laughs> but we're doing a podcast today, so it's uh, it will be very important for them to get a feel for what this new home you're about to. Absolutely. So the house at the moment is a rendered one-story house. It has rendered arches on the front. It's very much a 1960s sort of refurbishment of an old fibro cottage, I think. So the, the fibro has been clad over with brickwork. It's been rendered. We're sitting largely on a sand dune. The house is quite close to the street. It's not set back very far. And then it sort of expands out into the backyard as a one-level house. It's two-bedroom. It's called three. The third bedroom's really only two metres wide. You could call it a kid's room, but it's really an enclosed old balcony. And then off the back of the house, there's another enclosed balcony, which has become sort of like a sunroom. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep largely the footprint of the house and we're going to take the house up a level. We're going to extend it slightly to the west, which is out the back. Our backyard rises up to the west, so there's beautiful views from the house directly into the garden, and so the landscaping becomes quite important. From the front of the house, we're sort of removing the enclosed the arches. We're also removing what was an enclosed balcony. So there's sort of like a patio at the moment, and behind that there's an old patio that's been enclosed. So we're removing both of those to, to push the house visually back from the street. And... We live in an area, Matraville, Maroubra, Malabar, where a lot of house, single houses are being converted into dual occupancy. And what they're doing is, is they're creating these very modern box homes and the upper levels are bedrooms and they almost look like a prison from the street. They're like grills. And so my partner is really big on that our house has to be friendly and it has to make the street welcoming. It has to sort of improve the visual texture of the street. And I don't like architecturally designed homes that create like a jewel-like box that sits in the suburb. I, I think they're aggressive and you walk past them and I think, oh, God, it's so mean to the street. So for us, it's about landscape out the front. There's a series of terraces that you'll come up to get to the front door. There'll be some, some trees out there. There'll be a, a nice garden. And, and the house itself would be, I think, in the style of modern Australian coastal, I suppose you'd call it. It's largely going to be white. It'll be a lightweight house. We're trying to keep the existing foundations and the house is a timber-framed house at the moment. And working with engineers, the house has the capacity to take another level. So we don't have to sort of throw away all the foundations. So we're basically keeping everything in place and then we'll be putting another lightweight extension on top. And I think in our previous conversations, I've sort of spoken about some of my personal inspiration and, you know, there are a series of houses in America built in sort of like the 1960s and the 1950s by a gentleman called Horace Gifford. And Horace was sort of a friend of Louis Kahn's and Horace sort of has dropped out of popular reference as an architect, largely because he was a gay man growing up in, in New York and got caught in that HIV crisis and died quite young. But I think he was 50 around the time that he passed. But by that time, I think he'd done like 60 or 70 houses. And largely they're all sort of coastal houses in America and designed largely for gay men. And what's interesting about that is that I think within those houses, there's a book on him called The Architecture of Pleasure. And it really talks about the aesthetic response of the house to the environment, to nature. 
and these sort of coastal homes open up to the view. They have like private spaces in the house where you can sit in the sun and no one can see you, right? So you can be outside but private. There's a sequence of volumes that, are, that allow you to achieve that in the way he plans houses. And then there's, of course, the view, which is always important. But often the view is there but not the star of the house design. It's more about the way light comes into the house, the sunlight. In from winter to summer to autumn to spring, there'll always be somewhere to sit in the house and relax and be in the sun and you can read a book or you can sort of distress. And so those houses are always built out of timber generally and lightweight. And I think they set a program for what a lot of contemporary housing actually ended up doing. And even though we may not know, a lot of people don't know, we talk about the case study homes from the West Coast more than the East Coast of America from a contemporary mid-century architectural perspective. The West Coast generally dominates because California dominates and culturally it uh, produces the pop culture of America. So mm-hmm. That's really amazing. And I think I uh, failed to mention to our audience today that we're actually sitting in the house that you're talking about right now. So we're on Pre- Pre-renovation. <laughs> Which one day it won't be sitting here anymore in its current form and with that I wanted to introduce to our audience that it's been great to see you live in the house to begin to develop the brief I've personally also been able to stay here to see the local flora and fauna shift and shape you've located a bird bath in the front yard and the backyard on the very hottest summer days and I've seen the local birds thoroughly enjoy that I know I never thought I'd have a bird bath but we're sitting here I think the summer of the bushfires and literally a cockatoo dropped out of the tree onto the ground it was 42 degrees and we just looked at each other and realized oh my god there's no water for these birds and so then I thought oh my god that's what a bird bath is for I mean I'm so stupid I've never lived in a suburban house since I was 15 or 16 and so I was like oh we should put a bird bath in (laughs) (laughs) to keep it light-hearted if this is okay to share I also have you know heard you talked many times about you know the co-living concept so you know there are possibly possums up on the rooftop sometimes they come and visit overnight We, we have a regular visitor we visit tours every night that have their possum disco at about 4 a.m i have no idea how they get in but you know they're here that's right because really then extending that concept uh, you've once talked about if you um you were to renovate and you know put the new house on here that you'd love to be able to continue to see that happen and uh, that means that part of your breath is to really embrace the local <laughs> i think you have to like i did some i thought can we get rid of them okay so i went through the standard thing it's a pest and then you do research and possums have like a 50 meter radius of territory and if they're moved they generally die so it was like well why would i move it i mean i'm buddhist right so the idea that i was going to subjectively kill an animal just because you know they make some noise is, is sort of crazy and so yeah live with those animals but yeah to get back to the house so yeah the house will definitely be in an idiom of australian design what it is that's designed a daz and hopefully it's out soon we're documenting it right now and you know it's a very simple coastal palette it's white it's it'll have texture on the inside there's a little bit of avant-garde planning the kitchen sort of sits in the middle of the space with no it's only bench height and you can't see where fridges are you can't see anything like that so it is a little unusual in that respect. And part of me is like, should I do that? <laughs> but it's like, I'm going to do it. And then, you know, we've designed this house to have a series of sort of balconies and spaces. You can sit on the front for the more, the best sun in the house in the morning comes through the front of the house. So in the, we want to be able to experience that in the afternoon. It comes through where the living areas will be. In winter, there's an upstairs deck that's almost the full length of the house 
that is also screened so you can sit outside and you can have friends over in winter and you'll get all the sun that we want and it's sort of private or we can sit in the backyard at different times of the year so the house is really going to be designed for the ability to move around in, as the seasons request but the or dictate but there'll always be those spaces that you can just sort of chill out mm-hmm. and, and experience either sitting inside or outside and then the landscape itself, the house is a really huge component of the design. So I've sort of been working with the landscape architect and the house is a foil in a way because it is going to be white. But the idea for the landscape is that it's a garden that sequences through color. So the idea is that if you come and it's February and you turn up at the front, it may be in flower, but only flowers that are pink and they'll be natives. Then if you come in April, they could all be white. Because plants flower at different times of the season in Australia and we have winter, spring, autumn and summer flowering plant natives. So the idea is that the yard itself will almost colour seed during the year. And so whenever you come here, the house itself may be the same, but the view or the vista out, it could go lilac or it it could change colour. So the way that the yard relates to the house and then there's planting within the house as well. That is sort of the beauty of nature and that's partly, and it's all natives because because it has to be, uh, I think, because, you know, climate change. Yeah. (laughs) Many of the topics you talk about uh, reminds me of many of the design principles that designing with country would be respecting. So it's very interesting to hear you talk about the local flora and fauna, how it's important to be able to live with the seasons. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience in that and why it's so important to include natives? Look, I grew up on the Royal National Park. So when as a kid, we used to jump the fence and the park was right there. And from the age of five or six years old, we used to sleep in the park overnight with our friends. We didn't even have a tent. Uh, we used to just take a rope and tie some little trees together to create like an igloo. And our parents would let us stay out overnight. But we grew up in that in the Royal National Park and I still take everybody from overseas that comes to Australia there because it's so extraordinary. But it's just... There is a beauty to the Australian bush. And I don't want to recreate the bush. This is not going to be a synthetically recreated, oh, this is what the headland used to be, because nonsense. I'm, it's going to be, it's a synthetic garden. <laughs> but it will sort of just have those sort of local plants that are available. And then that supports the local birds. And Sally and I did do a project with a fairly strong work, designing with country basis. So we did, and it was actually in the La Perouse Headland National Park, so which is really where I live. So it was really a learning process for the both of us to go through what are the endemic species, what was here originally, what doesn't live here now because of the impact that Western civilization has had on the park. So certain flowering plants no longer exist because the forest wasn't being burnt. So they, and so I'm aware of some of those species that we should bring back and all that sort of stuff. Excellent to hear you actually practice what we've learned recently, which is really, really good to see. So as you talk about your project, we've introduced it to our audience and it sounds amazing. How does a general public begin to participate in this process? Because often architecturally designed homes seems very inaccessible. It's perceived to be expensive for its design 
cost as well as custom builds. Do you have any advice on how everyone can begin to understand spatial language and begin to recognize quality spaces? Or if they must and had to commission a new build and possibly that could be a project home, how can they begin to share in of many of the concepts and design principles you've begin to introduce? Yeah, so we are, we're privileged. We go through this education system that teaches us what the basic principles of location and amenity and analysis is for a site, right? So we know when we're looking at a site, okay, the sun's going to do this. And like you said, you've stayed here, I've lived here. I've had two clients that let me live in their houses before refurbishment because they, they wanted me to experience the quality of light from morning to evening, which was amazing. So for the average person, really... It's just about those very simple things of where is the sun going to come in? And so I've had friends who have bought development houses in the suburbs of Sydney and, you know, very well-built little houses. And they asked me, what can I do? What can I do? And so that'd been your plan. And, you know, I'm not going to reshape architecture here because this is just about introducing good quality amenity to the house. So for one of them, I just introduced a little, you could open the door and see all the way through the house and there was no privacy from the street. So we did a little alcove, like an arrival moment. And then simply flipping the kitchen from one, the Southern side to the Northern side and introducing a window into the Northern side was a big move. And then when their local friends after the house was built and people in the suburb used to come and visit their house, they always used to think, oh, your house is so much better than ours. And it's just that one window, right? Just that one move. And and so architecture is can seem like a sort of elite sort of profession and detached from people. And even shows on TV, I'm not going to name them, do tend to focus on luxury luxury, butler's kitchen, spa bar, you know what I mean? It's all luxury stuff and, you know, that's fine. But for most people, that's not within the realm of reality. Simple things like just getting windows in the right spot and getting the sun to come into the house, then, you know, that you can open up the back, the living room to the external spaces. We take this for granted in our profession. We think it's a given. But I think when you look at some of those, those houses designed for mass market, they often may take that into consideration their initial design, but as they're extrapolated across multiple sites, they can be back to front. They can be not quite right. So, do those simple those simple things are really what to think about. And so, yeah, if you're going to buy a house somewhere and it's going to be off the plan, go to the suburb at eight a.m. and see where the sun comes up. Right, go there every afternoon. You're going to spend the most money in your whole life in that moment, right? And some of the things, yeah, go go there and understand where the sun is and understand where the breeze is, right? So there's nothing worse than on a hot summer's day. This house I'm in now, right, is like an oven, but it's quite breezy, but there's not one window that allows cross ventilation. And so you're sitting in here and it's like, it's nighttime and it feels like 30 degrees and outside it's quite cool. And I'm, and it's like, this is so dumb. And so those really simple things, how to capture the breeze, how to capture the light. And you do have to really go there yet. If you're thinking of living somewhere or you're going to buy somewhere and you've never really been there, yeah, hang out there a little bit. Sounds stupid, but I think, you know, Richard Lepastro, who's one of our most famous architects, would say, put a tent up on site, (laughs) (laughs) right? Stay there for a few days, get a a feel for it, and then you'll know, even within that off-the-shelf home, if you just moved a few simple things, 
That's amazing. I think that's really good to hear you talk about Rick and a tent. And definitely, because I remember clearly you talked about, I'm not going to build right away. If I was to begin to go search for my new house, it's important to move into the suburbs to get a feel for it through rentals if it needed to be, and then begin to live in the house that you just newly purchased to also then experience the details of every season, every climate, and every, like you said, where the wind blows and totally comes in. Like for this house, we were lucky we'd sold our place in in the inner city in December 2019 and we decided to rent here at Malabar and we did and then COVID hit like six weeks later and so we're in lockdown my partner was overseas in San Fran at the time but we ended up getting to experience the local suburb every day right (laughs) for two years and we actually know it really well and but just yeah it's yeah, if you're going to live somewhere and you're going to buy a home for yourself and you're going to build, or you're going to build one, go and rent there first. Like people run off to auctions and pick houses because they get into such a rush. And I'm like, oh, take your time because that journey from the house to the train station or the bus stop or the corner store or all that sort of where's the local park actually affects the texture of your day-to-day life. And that's the stuff. When you hear stories about some of the new suburbs being built, it's the lack of civic amenity and the lack of walkable quality of life that really impacts the residents. And just assessing that for yourself is, I think, is important. Yeah, that's really good to hear because then for the general audience, many of the times that uh, they're looking for ideas to inspire them in their home design or even in decor, they often begin to reach out to social media and there's the mass media and whether it's Instagram, Pinterest, there's a lot of trendy architecture that's uh, posted daily and uh, they're all very good and beautiful. It's accessible because everyone now has it on their phone at their you know, mouse click fingertips. How do you approach trend in architecture? Do you consider it through your design style? How do you interact with that? Because it sounds like much of what you describe is timeless, defies trend. Yeah, look, I think that social media is a bit like sugar. And once you put sugar in a cup of coffee and get used to it, you add a second teaspoon and suddenly you're having three teaspoons of sugar. And, And then you're used to food that's always sweet. And then that becomes normal. And then the sugar hit goes higher and higher. And so I think design on social media over the last five years has gone down a sugar rush. And it works because it attracts attention. But we're seeing lime green bathrooms with aquamarine sinks with pink taps and orange ceilings, right? And they may win design awards. And I'm not saying they're not bad, but they're for a moment in time, I think. And I suppose... I just think about sustainability. I always come back to sustainability. Why are we doing that? And what's the ethical framework we're using for design? I think I can't design anything without establishing an ethical framework for it. And our job as architects, our job as designers is to educate the population in the value of something. And so capitalist society attributes value to things. Social media pumps the value of certain things up that value is completely detached from its actual dollar value, but then you can charge more for it. This is capitalism, right? You saturate, you pump it up, you make it extreme, right? Then you charge more for it. There's lots of products recently we've seen which used to be waste products that became desirable consumer products because through largely social media, I'm thinking of coconut water as an example. But 
And I think as architects, and so we think about that what, what is valuable to us and then our job is to show that value to the market. And so for sustainability, I think, you know, so Instagram is amazing and there's lots of ideas in there and they're all great. What you have to realize is like when you, because I watch all the fashion shows every season when they walk, I watch them from all around the world just to see what some of the best creative minds in the world are doing. And you see the runways and you know no one's going to wear it right? It's just a creative moment. And I think social media is a bit like that. So you just have to accept it as being a hypersaturated version of reality. And then for yourself, when you're designing something, you can respond to it. So at the moment, texture is important. And ultimately, when you look at the images, texture is has been big since the noughties and it's still big. And the texture is moving. It's been it's 60s texture at the moment. It's been 1930s. We call it the new deco. But really, all of the design languages are textured. And I think people are looking for texture in their homes, in their workplaces, in their lives. This connection to the handmade and to something that's been touched by someone else as a design object. And I think that's where the value is. And I think you can then shape a home around that. And so we'll do that for our own house. Like, we can't afford a lot of expensive materials. We do not have the budget. So we will be playing with some materials in our bathrooms in a quite avant-garde way. But then like the floor finish throughout the house, maybe a stone or maybe a terracotta or a tile, but we'll try to elevate one finish to introduce that texture. And it, yes, it touches on coastal homes from the Mediterranean and the Caribbean and, you know, all around the world, but it'll set an aesthetic base for the house that the, the neutrality can sit on. And so again, it's about that texture, right? So I think that's what people are interested in, in in their everyday lives is that texture. So, and I think Instagram's showing that. I think everyone loves the textures. Excellent. Does that mean that then, as we shift across, you're talking a lot about space and uh, spatial language is not something that's easily picked up and you begin to introduce understanding what texture is, understanding how materials interact with light. What do you see is important in your new house uh, to be refined in order to elevate your living experience? In the current times, more of us are working from home as a part-time or, you know, at home basis. It's important that our home is not just somewhere we come back to sleep only. How do you begin to shape that in your brief for your new house? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm in the suburbs at, at Matraville and I reckon every third house now has a, a squatting rack in their garage or in their driveway for the gym, for the guys. And so I know in my own house, I'm watching all the pavers be rammed into the sand bed underneath them as my partner drops the weights onto the ground. (laughs) So, you know, I think some sort of slab and vibration proofing is going to become standard as we move home. (laughs) There's lots of these weird little things that are coming into houses, right? Like literally up and down the street in the morning, people are working out in their front yards with full gyms. And I'm like, Oh, I think the media room is going to disappear and there's a home gym and a really established way is one of the trends. A lot of people will go back to the gym, but we know it's high transmission sites. So a lot of people won't, but definitely living at home has made us appreciate the ability to move between spaces. And I think that's predominantly the important thing. I don't necessarily love open plan living. Mm-hmm. I like a room or a niche or an, I like to be able to feel like I'm in a little cozy space when I'm reading a book. But I think fundamentally to be able to the function of a room to be able to move is important. So it could be the living room or it could be the dining, it could be a study, it could be multiple things. And I think that's sort of sustainable. So if you can design for that so the spaces can change their use and it makes sense, 
there's a public side to a house and there's a private side to a house. And the boundary between those two things is what we play with as architects. For the public side of the house, you don't want to see someone getting from a bedroom to a bathroom, right? You just don't want to see it at nighttime if you've got guests. That barrier that you create to allow the privacy to occur as well as the public activity to occur is the challenge of housing. You know, it's much harder in apartments when as they get smaller and smaller, you see people's bedroom doors in the living room. It's like, oh, my God, I'm always thinking of my flatmate, you know, because their bedroom door's right there. But in a house, you can play with that divide a little bit more. So, And then definitely in winter, you want spaces that can shut down a little bit to keep heat in. And, and so, you know, our sustainable thinking these days is always about how we retain heat. You only have to look to some of the countries that are more t- typical like Spain and all those sort of things where they have internal glazed doors in their apartments and so the sunlight comes through to a central space but they can shut the room down, I presume, for winter, right? You go to Berlin and you go to these apartments and they have these huge tiled fireplace things in the living rooms. They're like three metres tall because the ceiling height's really tall in old apartments. And I was like, that's a fully tiled, white tiled, and it emits heat, right? And then all the rooms have doors, so they shut down. So it's like, ah, oh. so some of that, the house needs to open and close a little bit. You've told us quite a bit about uh, the interior and internal space of this uh, new house you're building right now. If we share with the audience on how the internal space relates with the uh, exterior and introduce a bit more how the facade and why it's important to be able to design a building that's integrated inside and out, that would be amazing. Yeah, so the house is fairly simple. And I think even when you, if you read the architectural press for a general audience, they do refer to as the new Australian code coastal box style i've seen it called and i've looked at it and i said that's pretty extreme but i suppose it's pretty true and when you look at the work of horace gifford it is very rational like it is rectilinear generally there's sometimes a curve but very very rarely and so the houses can look quite volumetrically simple and so i suppose what we've done with this house is it has a series of pergolas sunscreens sort of eyelids and so at different times of the day like when we talk about the amenity on the inside when the sun's coming through the facade then at that point also is in a different state of shadow play so the house sort of changes its expression a little bit due to the impact of the shadow on on the facade and when you're playing with something with the purity of a, a monotone like a monotone house like you see black box houses you see white box houses that textual detail and the way light plays across the house in different times of that I think is what creates the sort of alignment. So for us, like I said, we, we don't have a lot of money for gestural form. We have some double height spaces. We're bringing light through to the lower levels. We're putting in a staircase. These are all classic moments to do sort of skylights above a stair and all that sort of things. But, you know, basically the way the shadow moves around the house will change the way you experience it. And I think that's just part of the playfulness of the house. So different times of the year, the garden or different times of the day, both the landscaping and the house will read differently. And I think, and then at nighttime, of course, the way it illuminates is the third component of that. And, and so the way the landscape illuminates at night and the house sort of has subtle illumination is part of that. Am I a good neighbor to the street thing? So the, the way that the sort of, yeah, when you walk up the street, the house is supposed to be a, a breathing moment. If that makes sense, it's supposed to feel generous to the street. 
so that's part of the the friendliness i hope of the house is that it, it feels it opens up a little bit to the street mm. so as you curate that arrival moment earlier in our talk here today you mentioned about it's important to have the facade give you a preview into what is behind <laughs> so if we were to concentrate on that moment <laughs> if it's uh, being worked on at the moment that's still okay How, how's your arrival moment being curated at the moment oh well because we are literally like two meters above street level there are some stairs to get up to the house it'll be noisy bringing the bins out because i can't afford to put a lift in and i can't because we're using the existing foundation i can't drop the house right so i could drop it down to street level from a garage perspective and come in up from a garage but I'm keeping my existing garage because I sort of financially have to. So there, the, the house is, yeah, there's a series of steps. The, the footpath itself is so steep that you can't have a footpath on it because our verge from the road is quite raked, as you know. So there are stairs in the public domain just to get up to our boundary line before you then enter the stairs up to the house. So it's a little elevated. So, But there's just a sequence of sort of levels and plants and and then – the foundations, like the old balcony that I'm removing, which has arches on it, I'm keeping the foundations and that's becoming a big planter. So that brickwork will take a tree. And I suppose as you come through the house, you'll notice the way the landscape in the house slowly starts to integrate. And I suppose that's the character of the house. And so as you come into the backyard again, when the house sort of steps out into the, the rear of the house, it's not even, it's sort of, it's a stepped form. And, you know, there's a tree up, a new tree up close to the house probably too close but it's sort of that's part of the joy of that i think is that you get to experience it quite you know some of that landscape integration i think is what the the front arrival moment starts, starts to tell you about every project has a client and this is your own home so you are the client here along with your partner michael can you share with us a bit more on how the two clients of this project have uh, responded to the brief differently? Is there <laughs> any particular requirements by each side that had made this project a bit more interesting or unexpected? Look, reflecting on that? I think that comes back to like, I often get clients coming into me and saying when they're doing a house, Oh my God, I'd love to have a red stone kitchen, but you know, I can't do that because I can't sell the house afterwards. And I'm like, Oh, to be honest, you are indicative of your own market. Like whatever level you're at, when, and that's this sounds mean, but we're not individual enough that we're not indicative of our own social group, right? So if you do it, someone else is probably going to buy it and like it. <laughs> but we can get very used to in our profession of censoring ourselves a little bit, right? Because especially if you do multi-res, because it's always so neutral or textured and neutral. And it sort of needs to be because it's, so, it's such a wide purchaser group. <laughs> but in the house with Michael, it's like, you know, I took him stone shopping and we just did a walkthrough of all the components of the house just so, you know, some of the boring stuff like, yes, we'll have fly screens because it's way too damp here and we have to. <laughs> and to then going stone shopping. And I think it's always so amazing when you walk into a stone warehouse, not a shop, but the actual, and they start looking at slabs and everyone goes, why doesn't everyone use this? Because there's so many amazing stones. So our kitchen stone is quite strong. Like it is strong. It's beautiful. And I probably wouldn't use it because I think it's quite polarizing, but it will be beautiful and it is beautiful. So for me, it's about taking those elements that you might not necessarily do and just making it work. Like, so then you have to rebalance around that. So if he's, if Michael's decided he wants this stone in the kitchen, 
which we can do, which is almost goes from deep green to charcoal with bits of white in it. And it's beautiful. I, we then have to rebalance the palette around it. So it's not in conflict. And I suppose you, and that's what you're doing whenever we're designing, right? We're adjusting hierarchy. Mm. I also don't want it to compete with the garden, right? So there's this subtle balance of not making it too egocentric that it demands attention all the time, but you know, making it work. And that's the beauty of working with a partner. Michael's really smart, but he does from a design perspective, like my partner doesn't see the physical world. He's an academic. He works in violence and gender. He sees the world in terms of power relationships. And so we'll go to the best restaurant in Australia and I'm, I'm not bragging, like we, we might once every 10 years. Right? And, and then it'll be an amazing design really is what I'm getting to. And then the next day, Michael has no idea what it looked like. And so for our own house, right, I know that like he clocks it, but for him, the response is more like a, a person who doesn't understand what they're experiencing, right? So the fact that it has light at the right time, that it feels friendly, no matter how high design or low design it is, those elements are what make people feel comfortable. So I quite like personally quite avant-garde things i've been a designer for almost 30 years right so my my personal palette of design can be quite obscure but it's an, it's always a balance of how you introduce some of that and make it feel approachable for people yeah so so in michael's yeah so there'll be some strong moments <laughs> Amazing. Uh, as we get towards the end of the chat here, many of us all become designers and architects to hope that one day we get to design our own home and shape the you know environment we live in. Is there any particular moments you've added or any particular program or functions you've added into this project that you've done it to provide yourself a bit of respite and uh, to be able to do that? And you think that many others might not be able to do that without being a designer or an architect? I think it comes back to your program of what you're designing for and what you aspire to, right? So at the moment in our market, everyone wants a butler's pantry, a second kitchen. Everyone wants X. Everyone's X. So I'm like, well, I could actually build a house. I've got such a big block. I could add another 80 square meters to the house I'm proposing. And I haven't done that, right? Partly for budget, but also partly because we've got three bathrooms in the house and one of them's also the laundry, but you won't notice it. I'm not building a separate laundry room. I probably should. If I wanted more value, I should probably put a butler's pantry in. I don't want to. I'd rather have a, a library where I can read a book than a butler's pantry. In reality, no one's ever going to use. And so it depends what value. So I, I probably, I think with as architects, we may see value in things slightly differently to the general market mm. because we're so used to working in this idiom of design. So the market is very much taught that you need X and X and X to be a certain. I've, so many people at the moment want a media room and all this. And I'm like, well, why do you want a TV in the bedroom? Because you just use your iPad anyway. Like no one's going to ever use that. And so we have, you know, the way value moves affects the way we design, I suppose. And so because we sit in a design world, we do see value slightly differently to the normal market. And that's, I suppose, the thing to assess when you're thinking about doing your own home is what do you want is a really important question. And to, to really ask yourself, what is the priority for you? Like there's lots of things we're told to have and it's a really easy trap to fall into saying, well, I want all those things because I want to be that type of person. But the question really becomes is, you know, what do you need? 
because <laughs> that's the luxury and maybe yeah. that's the risk. So that's why having someone to help you with that process, even if it's only for concept, right? You, you can engage an architect just for concept and then abandon us. <laughs> and you may then at least have some elements to introduce to your program that you've thought about in a slightly different way and that may help the outcome of the house. Yeah. So as we wrap up this chat... This is not the first time you've uh, custom designed your own living environment. So you previously have done that to your other apartment down the East Coast. And this is now a house. And as you shift through it, what is the greatest lesson you've learned through each stage of a moment in your life and each brief varying and how each project now differ? I think this is the fourth time, right? So the first three were apartments and the first apartment had no amenity. I mean, it had no attributes of value. It faced south. It was built in the 1920s. It was at Bondi. It was on the second floor. The building outside, the new building, our neighbor was like a meter and a half away. So there was no light. So you're, you're working with a program of how do you make something feel light? How do you make something feel like a home? In the, and and it, was, it's, it was a 65 square meter two bedroom apartment. Tiny, right? And so the, the and I had to build. I built that myself. I built the kitchen. I built the bathroom. I did all the electricals. I did all the joinery. I made it all myself. So I had to. But it's a different game you're playing. And then the next time, yeah, we made a little bit of money off that, and we could afford an apartment that had windows that got the sun. You know what I mean? Which was actually across the road and it faced north. And now we're on the top level, not the bottom. And so the design approach differs because that one was full of light and and so it's much easier so you're designing to but again built the kitchen built the joinery built all that stuff all that sort of stuff i think what you learn each time i love building things i think i could have been a builder to be honest i often look back and think why didn't you just become a builder but because i like the tangible component of building it so even with this house now elements will go to the builder the shell will go to the builder the major structural pieces will go to the builder, but there are some things within the house design that I'll build myself. And yes, I'll curse myself for taking that on, but at the same point, I will enjoy it. And I can also sort of, but that act of building is really important, tangible, I think. Hands-on, get some tools out. <laughs> and so there'll be elements of the design which will I'll still build myself and some of it, and they may just be some joinery or some of the screens that may go on the outside even, right? I may work with the supplier directly and we'll tailor it and there'll be bits that I can put together and, and some of that sort of stuff because there is something sort of deeply pleasurable about that moment. And I think that's for all of us. Like most people may never renovate in their lives, right? And then some people, you get to do it. It's such an honor and, and, and it's such a good experience. I mean, I suppose... You're dealing with a whole group of tradespeople, right? You're dealing with a whole group of other human beings who do these sort of trades and the plumber loves what he does and the electrician loves what they do and they're really good at it and you get to meet all these different people and and I think just if you are doing it, it's really good to step into it. Like you go to the tile shop, you go to the stone yard, you go to the timber yard, you go and you experience and you listen to people and they tell you things, don't choose that because it's going to warp in the sun and you'll learn all this sort of stuff and, and I think part of that engagement of our profession is what is so attractive to me is a profession I get to deal with so many different people and and when you do renovate a house yeah go to the window shop and ask talk to the window guy and run through what you like you may not know what even questions you're asking but they'll tell you different things about different things and 
Yeah, it's not necessarily about value at that point. It's about you do learn stuff about yourself and about other people. That's amazing. So that means is anybody can really get into design and uh, it's never too hard. And I think like all the lessons we learned in architectural school, we learn by making. And yeah. I think it's underrated and, and we don't do it enough because in our modern day, it's so easy to outsource that task. Well, creativity is a remote skill for people, even though now it's highly lauded, right? And so I think in social media, if we come back to that, what's actually lauded is the creative process is something that we now know has a lot of value. And when I became, when I left my economics to go right back to the beginning, when I stepped out of economics, my parents were terrified. I mean, we're super working class. I have like 50 cousins. I'm the only one who did the HSC. And then I went to university and they were like, oh my God, they understood being like in the bank. <laughs> I'm going to do a creative career. And my mother's like, you have never been creative in your life. And then 10 years after I'm into my career and you know, I'm doing okay. Like I, I've had some success. Like I've d- enough to have been on the juries for awards and all this sort of stuff. She started to decide she became creative and she started to do art and craft. And she started like, she took over a room in the house where she lives downstairs in secret and started making things. And then over the years, like she's gotten more and more comfortable with the idea of being creative. And it is something you have to get comfortable with because people are going to judge you, right? <laughs> you, can't, you can't take it personally if someone hates what you've done. But then she's retired, but she works in a little art collective and they run a cafe and they sell their art. And, and that's sort of amazing. Like she would never have got to that if I hadn't become a designer because she got access to the creative process. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about when you engage a creative for yourself as a, as a couple, say, or as an individual is you're actually often getting a gateway access to a different world and you should enjoy and experience all that that you can. I think, I think that's part of the value of the experience for people apart from the tangible house itself or whether it's just a renovation or a new kitchen, it's you're engaging in a creative process and often in live, we don't consciously do that. So that's the, that's the joy of our job. We do it every day. (laughs) That's excellent. If you were to leave our audience with a last thought on how to begin to review their own home or if they were considering and now they're still reviewing their options, whether they're going to build their own home or not, what would be some tips that you would share with them? Oh, completely. The first one is the first one and it's not going to be your forever home. So stop worrying about it. <laughs> like just buy something <laughs> or do something like if the wrong suburb, who cares? You're only going to be there for five years. That's the reality of like the way we live. We reassess everything as though it's a final and then we design everything as though this is an ultimate reflection of myself, but it's only you in a moment of time. And in five years, you are a different person. And so I think just take the pressure off a bit. And sometimes whimsy is good. Like sometimes, like let that thing that might not be quite right in. Like I was talking about Michael and the stone, I probably wouldn't use. And then you look at some of the work of some of our best ever designers and architects or creatives from anywhere, Australia or anywhere. There's almost something slightly wrong that it could have gone terribly wrong, but it hasn't because it's been controlled. And I think that tension between, oh, it's like the wrong color, but it works, or that stone's weird, or why have they done that, can often be the thing that adds the joy. So it's about, yeah, you can take a couple of risks. Just take them in a a sensible way. 
This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guest in this episode, interior designer Paul Brace from PBD Architects. We're very grateful for your time and we can't wait to see the future projects you design for your clients and also for yourself down the road. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Jamila Jahangiri. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.